It's good to be with you today on this Ascension Sunday. Very exciting Ascension Sunday. I can tell you're excited about it, ready to go. Yeah, Christmas and Easter, then like, yeah, whatever. It's okay, it's bitter just, we know, we'll help you carry it along. Have you ever been on a team with a great leader? Is my mic okay? Is it a little tangy? Is that right? Put it down. Mic's in my face. It's always a danger place to be. Is that better? No. Scott gave me a half heart. That's a B minus. I think I'm okay. We'll just keep going. I've been around some good leaders who led us through difficult times. We did more than we thought we could do. Uh, we um, faced challenges, and our leaders were courageous, believed in us, and we did amazing things. Yeah, I still not work. That's okay. All right. I go without a mic, as you all know. It'll be fine. <laughs> not for me. It's for like the internet, I guess. You know, so. But what do we do when that leader is gone? Um, there are some times there can be disorientation for a team. Lead is self-doubt and a lack of confidence. Our system was working great, and all of a sudden things are now different. Well, the disciples have been on an emotional ride of disorientation. They had seen the miracles, and they had heard the teaching, and they suffered the unimaginable despair of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, and they thought it was done. But on that third day, right? On that third day, by the power of the Spirit, the Father raised Jesus from the dead, a declaration that sin and death and violence do not have the, the last word. So on this last Sunday of Easter, we declare he is risen. By the way, Easter is a season, not as just a Sunday. But then Jesus' post-resurrection encounters the disciples were often like cool, but like it made them nervous. There was fear and apprehension and questions. It was joyful to be with them, but these times wouldn't last forever. As Pastor Scott and others have been leading us, this season of Easter has been this theme, We Are Witnesses. And we'll explore what that means even more today. So here's the whole sermon in 30 seconds. Feel free to pay attention now and fall asleep during the rest. If you can do that with my voice, it's not very easy. First is this. Jesus is the full embodiment of the kingdom, glorified as God's Messiah. And indeed, Christ today is robed in glory and majesty. Amen? And then Jesus is inviting us to move from being a spectator to a witness. And then first today... The, third, the, the first way to be a witness is to actively wait together as our act of worship. Now, we're going to read two texts today. Both are um, epistle texts and our gospel texts. Um, they both are kind of talking about the same event. And I talked to Dick Thompson, who's in charge of Luke. And he confirms that we still kind of think that Luke and Acts are written by the same author. So you'll see some, sorry, that popping. You'll see some connections to this text. So if you're able to stand for the gospel text, I'll invite you to stand. Luke 24, verses 44. Then I'm going to go right into Acts 1 through 11. You're going to help me? Please, come on. I'll keep reading. You just keep touching my face. It'll be very exciting. <laughs> Scott and I are very close. As you see, is that better? Okay. Thank you. Scott is always there for me. Now I feel like I'm so loud. It's okay. They'll figure it out. They can turn me down. Good luck. All right. You think, you think the microphone's on, don't you? <laughs> Here, Luke 24, 44. 
Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me from the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, this is what is written. That Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. A change of heart and life for the forgiveness of sins must be preached in his name to, look at this, all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Look, I'm sending to you what my father promised, but you are to stay in the city until you've been furnished with heavenly power. He led them out as far as Bethany where he lifted his hands and blessed them. As he blessed them, he left them and was taken up to heaven. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem overwhelmed with joy. And they were continuously in the temple praising God. If you're able to keep standing, you can. If you need to sit down, that's okay. Acts 1, 1 through 11. Theophilus, the first scroll I wrote concerned everything Jesus did and taught from the beginning. Right up to the day when he was taken up into heaven. Before he was taken up, working in the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus instructed the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed them that he was alive with many convincing proofs. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, speaking to them about God's kingdom. While they were eating together, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. He said, this is what you heard from me. John baptized with water, but only a few days will he baptized with the Holy Spirit. As a result, those who had gathered together asked Jesus, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel today? Or now? Jesus replied, it isn't for you to know the times or seasons the Lord has set by his own authority. Rather, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. After Jesus said these things, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going away and as they were staring toward heaven... Suddenly, two men in white robes stood next to them. They said, Galileans, why are you standing here looking toward heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks for that long standing. Good job. These two texts have a similar focus, but are kind of, and transition is obvious. And, of course, Luke is kind of concluding Jesus' earthly ministry, while Acts is beginning to launch the church into its ministry to continue the ministry of the incarnation. The despair of the disciples after the death makes a lot of sense. They weren't, they thought it was done. They thought it was over. They, they had no more hope. They went fishing again. They were scattered. They didn't know what to do. Well, what would happen now in this departure? What would they do at this time? Because Jesus was leaving them again. See, the stock market gets very nervous when a CEO is fired or resigns. Football fans get very edgy when their quarterback gets hurt or is threatened being traded. Sorry, Packer fans. Good luck with that. This community was fragile anxious and had very little power on its own. So we're going to kind of walk through both these texts, kind of mashed together today, if that's okay. In both these texts, Jesus begins, and he uses a similar word. He opens, similar to the word of opening in the, the, the Emmaus disciples. Jesus opens the scriptures to them to remind them that God has been at work, past, present, and future. 
that God is a God working to bring salvation to all the world. Now, I can't help but put on my professor hat for a little mini lesson for us. As we, as we engage the scriptures, both communally and individually, it's important to recognize um, that there's a task of interpretation. We don't just read the text and get truth, but we interpret it. But one of the things this text makes very clear, especially as we await Pentecost, is for a Wesleyan, our view of inspiration is not just simply we believe that God inspired those early writers and the church that gathered the text, all that is good. But the inspiration is not done. The inspiration occurs as we read the text, as the Holy Spirit guides us and teaches us this text. And not simply do we interpret the text, but how these texts interpret us. How the Spirit's alive and active and helping us together as we encounter the text. The main thing today about being a witness is we don't just move forward trying harder on our own. No, your effort matters. But what is clear, uh, there's a saying in sports, and Dr. Lynn Neal, it has bad grammar, I apologize. But sports chants often have bad grammar. The chants like this, uh, we all we got, and we all we need. Uh, that is not true. The disciples looked around and said, this is all we got? We're in big trouble. And that's our theme this week. That Jesus said, don't worry, you won't be in charge even though I'm leaving. Someone's going to come and help. God is to be our source of authority and power as we continue Christ's mission, as we are illuminated to become Christ's redeemed people. So today, if you feel you're not quite enough, this is for you. But guess what? Next week is coming. And so we wait. So Jesus, as he opens up the scriptures to them, talks about God's continual flow of moving in the text. And it starts, I'm sure, with, with Genesis 12. With the covenant given to Abram and Sarai. And one of the blessings they were given is that they were to be a blessing in order that all the nations of the world should be blessed. I'm pretty sure the word all includes all. And you'll see a little bit later, the disciples, once again, God bless them, that all is still too small for them. But God will help them. But what we also see in Jesus kind of adds to the story is that all these texts have been pointing to this Messiah. In and through whom there would be forgiveness and redemption and healing. I imagine some of you today can confess the difference Jesus has made in your life. As God has offered you forgiveness from sins, transformation, healing into life. And that is what we are called to preach. That that message is not an intrusion, but part of God's over, overarching narrative of the Gospels. Then he gives this command in Acts 1 and also John 24. So, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days we baptized with the Holy Spirit. For you are witnesses of these things. Some of you know, um, I grew up in Seattle. Seattle's a phenomenal city. Um, we've decided to help you uh, use computers. Thank you to Microsoft. We've encouraged you to be addicted to caffeine, thanks to Starbucks. And we've encouraged you to be forever uh, capitalist consumers, getting it tomorrow, thanks to Amazon. This is our contribution to the world. It's a great city, uh, and we also have sports teams. Thank you, Scott. If you're not from Seattle, you don't get it. It's okay. 
Um, the Seahawks, who I am indelibly connected to, we are home to the 12th man. Uh, I'll tell you about that in a little bit. Uh, growing up in the 80s, the Seahawks were known for doing lots of losing. Um, but their fans would go to what I've called the Kingdom, which was the concrete cathedral of King County. It was a large, massive concrete structure. And the sound echoes pretty well there. And the fans were loud, not because we were winning, because they were over-caffeinated. <laughs> in fact, in 1984, the Seahawks had been existed for like seven or eight years. They retired their first jersey. And do you happen to know which number they retired? It was 12 for the fans. I think it was a way to say, we're sorry, we'll try to do better. <laughs> I'm not sure. Now, when you go to a Seahawks game, you feel like you're kind of a part. And man, I love to be loud. Hello. Uh, and I feel like I'm helping, you know, the team win. But unfortunately, like all good things, uh, the 12th man did not start in Seattle. Although the wave did, by the way. Different story, different sermon. In January 2nd, 1922, uh, I don't think anybody was there then, um, the uh, Texas A&M Aggies were playing a very pivotal game against the Center College of the Praying Colonels. And those Praying Colonels were a dominant powerhouse. The Aggies were, as a team, decimated by injuries. They had injuries the week to practice. Early in the first quarter, a big running back went down. And so um, the coach, I think his name was Coach Bible, I think. Google it. I'm not sure. That's what I read. He, he knew there was a practice squad player maybe in the stands. So he called out to E. King Gill and said, get out of the stands and come to the sidelines. So he comes down the sidelines and puts on the running back's jersey who was hurt. And he waits. Now, some of the details I could get wrong, I believe. But now he's ready to go. But he actually doesn't get in the game, but he's ready. By the end of the game, supposedly there are only 11 players on the field and him on the sidelines, the 12th man. And so Texas A&M wants to think about, to be a 12th man is you're always ready. Um, for any of you washed up old like sports, right? Coach Pete Carroll, I'm ready, put me in, right? Um, but the invitation for us today, and the disciples had been good at being spectators to Jesus' ministry. But there is an invitation that God wants to move us from the stands to the sidelines. And the sideline means eventually you could be put in. You see, along the way, I'm nervous that sometimes um, we like Jesus who will entertain us. I think in the Gospels, two great figures of Pilate and Herod, they're fascinated by Jesus. He's interesting to them, I think, to be honest. Many of the folks on Palm Sunday... We're cheering on the sidelines. This is interesting. This guy's got some fame. And they were spectating to this really cool, interesting, intriguing figure. But as we know, being a spectator on the, on the stands is way, requires way less sacrifice than being on the team and the rigors of that discipline. So the invitation for us today is what does it mean for you to not just be a spectator Cheering, Jesus, you're great. But to say, Jesus, I'm willing to follow. I'm going to come to the sidelines and then to see what happens next. There's one more part of this being a witness, and this part is less fun. In both the texts, Jesus keeps referring to the place of how the Son of Man, Jesus, suffered. 
Now, it's really important as a theologian and pastor, you always be careful what you're hearing and being said. God is not a masochist. God does not like suffering, innocent victims to suffer. God is not for it in any way. Yet there's a unique way in which God is bringing this kingdom. It is not through sword. It is by serving, by turning cheeks and loving enemies. And actually the word witness for the early church meant the idea of being a martyr. And martyrdom, by the way, is not that you simply want to die. To be a Christian martyr means you are not afraid to die for the cross and the kingdom. And I think today, we're happy to cheer in the stands. Great job. I, go Jesus. But what does it mean when he calls the sidelines to say, well, well are you going to be willing to, to, to join in? Pick up your cross and follow me. Well... We're great, right? So we're, okay, we decided we're from the stands, the sidelines. Put me in, coach. We're ready now. I've got fired up. I'm, I'm ready to go. And then Jesus says, okay, now wait. How many of you like waiting? Okay, not very many of you. Uh, I'm with you. I hate to wait. I've told you before this story. I have like five stories, and I preach very, you know, infrequently, so you forget them. It's good. Um, I had the privilege of being, uh, living in Chicago. Uh, for a while, with my PhD, and I had the blessing of pastoring a church and working at UPS. My UPS, I was part of the preload, so my shift would often start about 1 a.m. And I had a little, not a far, right, 10, 10, 15 minute drive to Chicago at 1 a.m. And in Chicago, that's the best time to avoid traffic, I've learned. But I had three or four what I call dumb lights. Dumb lights are on timers, they don't care that it's 1 a.m., you're gonna wait your turn. So I'd sit there. Since I'm in church, I can confess two or three times. More than that, I like, forget it. I'm out of here. Um, I hate to wait. I don't like when cookies are in the oven. I want to come out now. I want to eat them. Um, I am an activator. Once I get an idea, for those of you who know me, get an idea, I am off and running. Let's go for it. Let's do it. Well, the good thing about that is I don't procrastinate very often. Well, this mic is being weird. I'm so sorry. I've got a big, big head, big voice. So it's good that I don't procrastinate much. The bad thing is sometimes I can move a little too quickly. I got to give my team time to process. And occasionally making decisions too quickly can end up in, in um, not such good situations. But I don't like waiting. You don't like waiting. But waiting does leave me with a sense of urgency and uncertainty. It's not fun, but it can be a good discipline. Now, it's important to say this. Waiting is not about being lazy. Waiting is, for the disciples here was an active form of worship. It was an active way of bearing witness of the discipline of waiting upon God. Because we recognized, as they did, they were not going to be enough. But waiting is also a statement that my strength and power and timing alone are not sufficient. Essentially, waiting reminds me, it is not all about me or about you. Maybe we can trust God in this process. So how shall we wait? Um, for those of you who are Star Wars nerds, the one image I have, it doesn't really work completely, but bring up Star Wars is always fun in a, in a sermon. For those of you Star Wars, kind of one or four, Phantom Menace. At the end, of course, you have to have the lightsaber battle at the end. In the end, um, little Obi-Wan on the side, because he gets beat early, it's Qui-Gon against Darth Maul. 
Now, if you're not sure Star Wars fans, you can guess who the bad guy is by the name of their, their names. Darth Maul, okay, isn't good. So they have this lightsaber balance, great. All of a sudden, they have some, like, um, laser field that blocks them. They can't fight each other. There's, like, this laser field that just pops up there. And they're waiting. And Darth Maul is seething. He's thrashing around, thrashing his lightsaber against the thing. And Qui-Gon just sits there, goes to his knees, and as all Jedi do, is thoughtful. Well, the analogy breaks down in lots of ways. The, the shields go up and they start fighting again, so don't go too far the analogy. But how do you wait? Pay, I, I can't, they told me with the camera I can't pace, so I'll just stay right here pacing back and forth. Cause look at your, you, how, do you wait well? I'm not a good waiter. I don't like waiting, I'm a bad waiter. The disciples were asked to wait actively in prayer. Do we believe in prayer? I know I believe in prayer by how often I'm praying, by the way. God desires for me to stop and wait. And by the way, prayer isn't always me talking. I think God just said, Brent, why don't you shut up for a while? You talk enough. And listen. Be open. And this is a week for us to wait actively and listen and be aware of what God is wanting to say and do. And then the question we have to ask for, well, what are we to wait for? How big is your vision? In Acts 1-6, Jesus has just promised the Holy Spirit's coming. And the disciples, God bless them. They said, great is now when Israel's going to be restored. So um, we're celebrating graduates today. Um, and we just had an NNU's graduation uh, just last week, wait, a long time ago, for like a long time ago. And with our graduates, it really is sad to see them go. Uh, again, in the great uh, line from Indiana Jones, um, they leave just when they become interesting, <laughs> which is all true. Um, but in the end, um, the end of the year, we have often projects that students get a report off and on things they've learned through the semester and a variety of ways they do this, either in a paper or a presentation. And so as professors, we wait with eager anticipation of what they will say and do. And I had, you know, through the years, some final projects and kids get up there. I'm waiting to see if my life as a professor actually does any good. And they open their mouths. Then I think, I wonder if I still have that number to my UPS boss. I wonder... I wonder what Jesus was thinking. Now, he doesn't rebuke them. Certainly, this is going to be about the restoration of Israel. But you see, Israel was going to be great again, not by becoming the new Rome, not becoming an empire. Israel would be great by becoming a servant to all. Go back to Abraham. How Israel, you'll be empowered not for your own might over others, you'd be empowered to love the world. That all the nations will be blessed and fall under the love and the protection of Yahweh. F.F. Bruce, a scholar, had this quote about the disciples and their response. This disciples' present question about Israel appears to have been this last flicker of their former burning expectations of an imminent theocracy with themselves as its chief executives. 
In other words, this is their last little shot as, yay, us in charge, taking out the Romans. So again, Jesus does not deny the importance of Israel's restoration, but their restoration and the empowerment that will come as we celebrate Pentecost next week is not for us to become a new empire of violence and power, but to be empowered to continue the mission of Jesus Christ. That those in the margins, those who are lost and they are broken, those who are hurting, they are finding the grace and the power of Jesus Christ. Amen? Friends, too often my vision is too small and too selfish. I'm not saying it's bad to have dreams for you and for your home and your family. That's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing for us to have dreams and visions for our church. All that's good. But we remember what God desires is what we do here is participating in the all creation being redeemed. Where God will send us, where the winds will blow. Let us be faithful. Let us never have too small a vision. He says then this in verse 8, in case you weren't paying attention, disciples, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. It'll begin here, then Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. We wait for the empowerment to participate in God's global mission of the coming and present new creation. That's our goal. That's our calling. Then we have the ascension. And Jesus is taken up. Um, from eternity, this is weird. This is not a time for science. We don't know how it all works. But suddenly they are unable to see him. But I, I love this scene. I will say this, by the way. The ascension is not simply an afterthought, how an awkward way to get rid of the body. Like, where does it go? Um, my friend, Dr. Thompson, reminded me, I didn't know this, in Luke 9.51. Now, we'll say this, in often the Gospels, and especially in Mark, Jesus heads toward Jerusalem to face his passion. He's going to Jerusalem to die, and then to be raised. All that's very good. But Luke notes in Luke 9, that he says, I'm going to Jerusalem as, well, as I wait for my ascension to happen. The ascension is not an afterthought or an awkward segue. The ascension is part of God's vindication and testimony that this person, born among peasants in an occupied land, with a ministry among the outcasts and the marginalized, who was taken by the Jews and the Romans and scourged and crucified, shameful, dishonoring death, but then who was raised. But this ascension declares Christ is the Messiah of God in all the glory and power that he deserves. This is the full vindication that declares Christ is Messiah. He is our King and Lord of all. Amen. What Dick also pointed out to me is really key, and we'll save this for, Scott can do this next week in the sermon, but I'll say it here to give him a heads up. The gospel's actually a little bit weird, like, well, what's this ascension doing? Um, and Dick thinks it's really crucial in the, uh, Peter's Pentecost sermon and speech in Acts 2.33 says this. Christ is exalted so that as Christ receives the promised Holy Spirit, Jesus can then, from the right hand of God, pour his, that Spirit out on all people. That Christ will play a function in the outpouring of the Spirit. But as he says in, in John, until he leaves, the Spirit cannot come. But in this way, 
Jesus is the full embodiment of the kingdom of God. Now, uh, after this, this seat here where the disciples are looking up, these two guys just show up. And I have this like, comical view of like a Mel Brooks like awkward moment, right? Like, what are you doing here? Why are you here? Why are you look, what are you looking at? I will say these characters, we think in the way Luke writes them, should be connected to the same two individuals who the, um, we find that Mary finds in the garden. And by the way, the word two, the number two is interesting. Um, in Deuteronomy 19, you have to have two people for credible witnesses. Before, to the women, these messengers bore witness to Jesus' resurrection. But here they bear witness to Christ coming again and a charge to go on to Jerusalem. But notice this. In the same moments of his ascension, we get the hope of the promise that what? Christ will come again. As I've been around Christians a while, and especially these last year or so, I wonder how well Christians do with having hope. Now, a Christian hope, let's be clear, is not some naive sense of ignoring the realities around us. In fact, a Christian hope is to be very present to all the needs of the world. But if I were to have the confession time as one of us, one of my observations, Christians have been living on a liturgy of fear far more regularly than a liturgy of hope. Now again, our, our liturgy of hope is not immune to the heartaches and the pains and the tragedies of those around us. It is not a naive, ostrich, bury your head optimism. But it is a hope that what began in Jesus Christ, this new creation kingdom that was here, is coming every day. Do we believe that? Now again, if you look to the 6 o'clock news for your hope, good luck. Remember, the news's job, what's their job? Is to make you watch... And so they're going to start out with the worst thing that happened today. You don't hear about all the amazing things in the world that God is doing. Um, just a case in point. Our hope is in the confidence that the God who has been at work in this world will continue to be at work. And the Christ who left us will return again. Now again, what do we do until we return? We're not going to go in a holy huddle and be afraid and kind of seclude ourselves off from the world. But this week we're called to wait. But a little spoiler alert, what Jesus said, when that spirit comes, guess where we're going? To Jerusalem, Judea, and to Homedale, and to Marsing, and to little old Nampa. To the ends of the earth as we await Christ coming again. But everything we do as Christians is grounded in the hope of Jesus Christ. A kingdom that is here and is coming. I think we would live differently if we were grounded in hope versus fear. So what are we to do? Number one, what does it mean for you to move from being a spectator with your yay Jesus signs, caffeinated or not, to going to the sidelines, to be a witness and this week we're called to bear witness by actively waiting upon God and listening upon God. But we're to join this team and there will come a day when God's going to ask us onto that field. And to be really honest, the field is where life is found, but the field is not always fun. We're called to go and to be 
the love and the breath of Christ, even when hardship comes. But the joy of the Lord will be our strength. Joy does not come from the circumstance, from the fact that God reigns and that we have the privilege of living into this mission. So then we're reminded that we need the Spirit. I need to be reminded, Brent, you're not quite enough. As loud as you are, you've got to wait. Chill out. But in our waiting, God, can you help me have a bigger vision? And again, I want you to care for your families and our neighborhoods, and that's good, but keep that vision expanding. How can we care for the homeless teenagers in our community? How can we care for the folks less than a mile here who would not have enough to eat today? How are our hopes big enough that we have the compassion and the grace of God to be present? Like Advent, we are in a season of waiting this week. But God involves an, act, an active bearing witness to what Christ wants to do. And then God can invite us to not be so impatient. God, may your patience reign in my life. Let me trust you. Let me recognize my need for your power. And then, friends, what does it mean to embrace the vision of what God is doing in the new creation? Do we believe that Christ is coming and the Spirit will be at work in the world empowering us, calling us, not for our little kingdoms, to be to see God's kingdom come in every neighborhood, among all nations, all people, all over the world. We are not enough, amen? But the Spirit will be. So friends, it will be in Christ alone that is our power. The one who has forgiven our sins. The one who has redeemed us. The one who was born, lived, died, and ascended in glory. And in Christ alone will be our strength and shield. I invite the team to come on up. Gracious God, we thank you this day for this awkward, weird day to celebrate your son's ascension. But Lord, we see from the text, this was not an afterthought of your story, but a declaration of indeed the glory and splendor and majesty of your son Jesus Christ who is at your right hand. And Lord, in this ascension, we are invited this week to come out of the stands to the sidelines. But you don't ask us to jump in right in the middle with our own power and strength, but you want us to wait, to be disciplined together in worship. Lord, this week in our waiting, may we wait patiently, actively in prayer. Lord, may we consider what it means to move from spectator to witness. What does it mean, Lord, for us to be willing to follow your example and take up our cross and follow you by the power of the Spirit? Lord, what does it mean this week that we live out of abundance and a liturgy of hope and not of fear? Lord Jesus Christ, as your son was here, he inaugurated this new creation. And Lord, as Scott helps us, we pray it every week, your kingdom come, your will be done. And Lord, we want to see it happen. And Lord, it's going to be discouraging sometimes. Things don't always go as we think they should. But Lord... Our circumstances will not dictate the joy we have in you. But they still call us to lament and to cry out for the things that are not as they should be. For those, Lord, today for whom they are in the thralls of turmoil and pain and heartache, we pray your spirit's presence and closeness to them. Lord, we pray in this week of waiting 
as we recognize our need for you, then indeed, Lord, we will trust in Christ alone. And that will be enough. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand.